You are listening to The Real Faith Stories Podcast, interviews with people who chose to boldly follow their faith. I'm your host, Brian Robinson. Now, let's meet our guest and hear their story. Benji, welcome to Real Faith Stories. It really is an honor to have you on the program today. I'm so happy to be on. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. We are going to dig into some powerful things that the Lord has led you and your team into. Before we do that, I would love to hear where you grew up, how you came to faith, how you got involved in documentary filmmaking, and then how the Lord led you into doing an incredible work against the sex trafficking industry. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Absolutely. Grew up in Southern California. I was the youngest of four children. Had somewhat of an idyllic upbringing from the sense of just being out doing things that young boys love to do. I We had a endless fields behind our house where we'd ride motorcycles and build forts and hunt for snakes and do all those kinds of things. And as the youngest of four, I think I was a bit sheltered, maybe from some of the other dynamics going on that I grew up with. And But at the age of 11, I would say it was a real turning point for me in my own personal journey. At 11 years old, I watched a movie called The Accused. It was a movie about a woman named Cheryl Arroyo who was played by Jodie Foster. And it was a true story about this woman who was gang raped in a bar and then her ensuing fight for justice. And the way that scene in the bar, the gang rape was depicted was so gruesome and just heartrending. And I, I distinctly remember as an 11-year-old being awakened to the knowledge of the presence of evil in the world for the first time. And I had this real haunting feeling that rape has to be the worst thing that could ever happen to a person. And so I continued to grow up, but didn't have a real knowledge of how prominent sexual violence was in our world. And it wasn't until I found out about the issue of human trafficking that I really began to understand in a deeper and more clear way how rape has been systematized into our planet through the industrialization of the sex trade and the commercialization of sex. And it was really that discovery of human sex trafficking that brought back all those feelings that I had as an 11-year-old that came fully into my consciousness and compelled me to step out in actually doing something to make a difference. And so that's a bit of the thread on how I came into this issue of fighting sex trafficking I would say that my faith has always been an important part of my life. My grandmother was a very powerful woman of faith. She ministered with Catherine Kuhlman, mm. was a part of the early launch of Calvary Chapel, ministered with Lonnie Frisbee. And then my family, we lived in a commune with Lonnie Frisbee called the Blue Top Motel. It was our family and Lonnie's family and a few others Tommy Coombs and Shelley Coombs from Love Song and a few others. And so I, I was born into the Jesus movement, into a revival. And I would say that my grandma played a really powerful role in my life as someone who influenced me and my faith all growing up. So 
I couldn't stray too far from the full because her prayers were always reining me back in. My grandmother was an abolitionist and her mother was a prohibitionist. I think I come from a long line of powerful women of faith and activism. And when this issue of human trafficking came onto my radar, it was something that I just knew I had to do something about. I would describe it as my burning bush moment. And it wasn't until years later that I sort of connected the dots and realized, you know, wow, this is something that goes beyond just my own personal life. But I could see the the lineage of looking at my grandmother and her mother and so on. So yeah, so I think God calls us generationally. I think that he calls people as capital D deliverers, if you will. You know, we often talk in the church about the ministry of evangelism, the ministry of preaching, the ministry of teaching. You know, we talk about apostles and prophets. But I also see in Scripture where God calls people as healers, like capital H healers, people who are anointed for the work of healing, not just waving a wand over somebody and pronouncing something and looking powerful on the stage, but healing in the sense of dedicating one's life in a self-sacrificial way to the internal transformation to get other people unstuck and to get other people's trauma restored and healed. And so that calling of healing, of being a healer, I think is one that I'm very appreciative of in this work of fighting sex trafficking and seeing the way that therapists that we work with are able to walk people through the trauma that they've experienced in trafficking situations. Um, Deliverers, I see in scripture where God calls people in a unique way to help bring freedom and deliverance to others. So this idea where Jesus says that he was anointed to set the captives free, to open prison doors, to heal the brokenhearted, those aspects of calling I I think are very powerful and what I ultimately identify with. Let me circle back, Benji, on your grandmother, who was an abolitionist. What's one or two of your most vivid memories of her? My grandma had three supernatural encounters with God in her life. She, you know, she would tell me these stories and I would always ask, you know, tell me that story again, you know, and because yeah. they were so powerful. And her younger years, she was the equivalent to what is today a supermodel. And she actually was roommates with Catherine Hepburn living in <laughs> Los Angeles. And actually was a big part of getting Catherine Hepburn to get an agent and get involved in the industry. And Wow. But she had this really profound encounter. Her dad had died when she was younger, and then her mom died. And then in a place of desperation, began to cry out to God. The way she always described this experience to me is that that in that moment of desperation, crying out to God, suddenly the room she was in was filled with his visible and tangible Shekinah glory. The the tangible weightiness of the presence of God filled the room. And she began to talk to him, and she said, God... I've always loved you. How could you let this happen to me? How could you let my dad die and my mom die and now I'm all alone in the world? And she was asking him this. And his response back to her was, Marjorie, you've never loved me. And she said, when she heard those words, it struck her heart. It pierced her heart. And she said, God, if I've never loved you, how do I love you? And he spoke back to her and said, how would you love Abraham Lincoln? Knowing that Abraham Lincoln was her 
favorite person and her hero. And she said, well, I would go to the library. I would get every book that I could. I would study his entire life. And she said that as she was saying those words, the revelation filled her being that the Bible is 66 love letters from God to fellowship and get acquainted with him. And from that moment, she became a devout woman of the word and prayer. She died on ultimately on Father's Day at 2.37 in the afternoon. And I've always correlated that, Luke 2.37, and I never left the temple day and night in prayer, preaching the gospel to everyone. And I always thought of my grandmother as an Anna because that was the life that she lived. She was completely devoted to the word and prayer. I have never in my life even come close to meeting somebody who loved Jesus as much as my grandmother loved Jesus. Her face Mm. radiated with the countenance of God and a deep internal joy that was just radiated to everybody. If she met you, she would shake your hand and immediately get a song over you and begin to prophetically sing that song over you and ask you if you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. I mean, it was, she was a <laughs> whirlwind. She was to our family what Catherine Kuhlman was to the world. She brought the Holy Spirit. She brought prayer. She brought the word. She brought the power of God into our family. And I truly don't think that I would have made it apart from her prayers because I, I was prone into all kinds of, you know, going to the left <laughs> and the right and every which way. She was just always there interceding for me. And so she played a, a very powerful role in inspiring my faith throughout my upbringing. You know, as you're sharing this, something deep inside me is groaning for that very same experience. Mm. In my opinion, it's the heart's cry of every follower is, I want to be so in love with Jesus. He's so real all the time Mm -hmm. that I can't help but let it pour out of me like rivers Mm -hmm. of living water and splash Mm -hmm. on everybody, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows whether you said something or not, they've been in the presence of the Lord, just like the disciples. They could see they'd Mm -hmm. been with the Lord. Yeah. I think what she discovered was that he is the word who is made flesh and came and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And she fellowshiped with him in his word as though those words were true. And what that looked like was a life of total devotion and radiant joy and deep, deep love. And I don't know if I'll ever attain to the level of devotion that I observed in my grandma's life, but it was incredibly inspiring. I just feel so grateful to have such an incredible godly heritage. It's like the Apostle Paul, when he spoke to Timothy, talked about the faith. He was first in his grandmother. And there's something really powerful about a praying grandmother. And, you know, this world that we live in is increasingly dark. We're living in unique times from the standpoint of being really the first generation to be totally saturated in visual media and the potency of that and the vices as a result of that. And just generally, the consumerist, consumptive, addicted culture that we live in offers so many unhealthy outlets that people become stuck in as a lifestyle. And so for me, I always come back to what was modeled to me through the life of my grandmother. And I'm always trying to come back to that place of devotion and staying grounded 
in that place of faith. So I'm just super grateful for that. She carried her guitar with her everywhere she went. She would, you know, sing Maranatha songs or just songs that she made (laughs) up. And she just lived in a constant stream of joy and devotion and under the anointing of, of God and the Holy Spirit. You know, not all of us have that, and and God is a father to the fatherless, and I, I'm so grateful that he doesn't qualify us yeah. by virtue of things that have or haven't happened in the generations that we were born into. But I know from my part that I just feel incredibly grateful for that witness that mm-hmm. was modeled to me, and I hope to pass it on to my children and my grandchildren as well. Yeah, for sure. Let's shift a little here. I'm curious— did you get involved in documentary filmmaking before or after you felt this call to get involved in working against the sex trafficking industry? The arts have been a really important part of my life all growing up through middle school and high school. And I eventually got a scholarship to the Art Institute of Southern California and I opted for film school instead. And eventually opened up a martial arts studio out of a need just to survive in Southern California. And I was going to say, I see the connection, film and yeah. martial arts. Yeah. So I'd say one way or another, I've always been very passionate about the arts. The thing that really brought it all full circle for me was being able to marry my passion for film and filmmaking with a real life passion to help change lives Mm-hmm. in a positive way and help affect an issue that was such a grievous injustice like human trafficking. And so when I discovered the issue of human trafficking, I think for me, um, that was the natural next step, especially given the time at which I discovered human trafficking. So I first discovered human trafficking on February 3rd, 2007. And at that time, there was very little awareness about this issue. And so it seemed to me that one of the most important things that I could do was to help tell the story of what was going on in the world. That is what led me to making my first documentary called Nefarious Merchant of Souls. So just to give a big bit of a timeline, I discovered this issue February 3rd, 2007. Two days later, February 5th, 2007, we have a prayer meeting to pray into this issue of human trafficking that I had just learned about. And so I was leading the Monday night intercession set at the House of Prayer in Kansas City at the time. And Misty Edwards was the worship leader. There were a number of powerful singers and musicians on the team at that time, David Brimer and Laura Hackett-Parks and a bunch of others. It was a really, really powerful team. And uh, I look back on that now and see how, in a way, God was assembling this cluster of dry branches. You know, we were all living lives of fasting and prayer and devotion in the Word, and and He used that to spark a fire, to birth a movement. So we're having this prayer meeting. Beforehand, we meet 30 minutes before we actually go out to lead the room in prayer, which at that time, there was about 500 people who would gather every Monday night. At this point, I'm now the resident expert on human trafficking because I you know, learned about it two days before any of them. Right. So, so I'm sharing, you know, there's this thing called human trafficking, you know, and one of the singers speaks up and she says, I just had a dream about this. And she said, I was abducted in the dream. I was abducted by a foreign man and taken to the home of an American man. And she goes, I didn't know what was happening. But then she said, as I was taken to this home, I realized that uh, this home was being used as a brothel 
and that I was going to be prostituted out and forced into prostitution. And she says, I began to hear the intercession of Jesus praying, Abba, open up the heavens over the weak. Open up the heavens over the weak. So she shares this. The burden of God fills the room, and and we are all just feeling the weight of that. So we go out to lead this prayer meeting, and I announce, you know, this issue. We're going to pray about human trafficking, and we're going to pray for God to open up doors for authorities to make busts. And for the next two hours, there was a gripping of travail in the room and just such a deep groaning of prayer and intercession and people running up to the mic and in tears and crying out. And the next evening, I received an email from a friend who said, bro, check this out. And, and it turns out that there was a, a bust that had occurred in which 2,700 suspects were netted in 77 countries, and they called it a global strike against child trafficking. And so for us at that moment, we felt like it was an exclamation point of God on behalf of our prayers as we sought His face for this issue. So that was a really powerful catalyst of faith that drove us into continuing in the place of prayer. After about nine months of this, a woman approached me who I had never met. She said, my name's Gloria. I'm a widow. I know you don't know me, but God has told me to give you $10,000 to start an organization to fight human trafficking. And we had already been feeling like we wanted to put feet to our prayers. So that was the catalyst to then begin to go out and document this global phenomenon of sex trafficking around the world. When Gloria handed you that money, what was that gut level feeling you had? Well, that's a great question. At that time, I was living as essentially an intercessory missionary on a few hundred dollars a month. You know, I mean, <laughs> so $10,000 felt like, what will we ever do with all of this money? You know, yeah. <laughs> I felt like I have to justify to her, you know, her investment. But we just knew it was a weighty investment of God into our dream to end sex trafficking. It felt really emboldening and permission giving to pursue this as a calling. Then as we began to walk this out, we have followed in a way the bread trail of God's provision as we've stepped out in faith to tell the story of what's going on and raise up an army to combat it. And one interesting thing that happened several years later is I had gone up to Reading in Northern California to speak at a church, and I was meeting with their leadership team, and there was a survivor of human trafficking there. And everyone was saying happy birthday to her. And so I said happy birthday to her, of, of course, and she said happy birthday to you. And I, and I said, oh, no, my you know birthday was back in November, but thank you. And she said, no, today was the first day that you learned about human trafficking. She said, I heard you say it in a message once. And I never forgot it, she said, because on February 3rd, 2007, on my birthday, I was in prison because I wouldn't testify against my trafficker. And she said, and I got down on my knees on that day, that year, and I prayed that God would raise somebody up to expose this evil injustice as my birthday gift that year. Wait, let me go back. I'm looking at the dates I wrote down. Obviously, this is the point you're making. February 3rd, 2007 was the day that sex trafficking came on your radar. Yeah, exactly. And it was the exact same day she got on her knees 
and asked for this. Yeah. So I don't know her. She's in prison somewhere because she won't testify against her trafficker. This survivor of trafficking gets on her knees and prays, God, raise somebody up to expose this evil injustice, February 3rd, 2007. I'm on a completely different part of the country in Podunk, Missouri, and God drops this burden on me on February 3rd, 2007. And so I, I look back, I mean, there's many, many other things along those lines that have been really grounding evidences of Mm. God's call on my life in this area, which I think I've needed to be quite honest, given the weightiness of the burden. And it's not really, it's not sustainable work in the natural sense. It's just so awful. It's so egregious and such a difficult subject matter. So I think that those temple moments of you know, God's providence and his fingerprint mm-hmm. over this have been really powerful for me in terms of staying on the course and I'm just continuing to say yes. I've also taken inspiration from passages like Daniel 2.22, where it said says that God sees what is in darkness, but light dwells with him. I view my own personal calling in this sphere as choosing to partner with Jesus in his work of abolition. Proverbs 2 said that, says that God guards the paths of justice, and the way that he does that is in partnership with human beings, like where it says in Deuteronomy that God searches the earth to and fro, looking for one whose heart is loyal to him, that he might show himself strong on his behalf. Or in Ezekiel 22, where it sa- says that the land was full of injustice and iniquity and that God was going to judge the land. So he sought an intercessor, one who would stand in the gap and build a wall before him on behalf of the land. There's this picture of God looking out over the balcony of heaven. He sees the injustice and his desire is to move, to intervene on behalf of the vulnerable on behalf of those injustices. And the way he chooses to do that is in partnership with man. So when God wanted to birth the human race, he did it in partnership with a man. When he wanted to build an ark, he did it in partnership with a man. When he wanted to birth a nation, he did it in partnership with a man. So we see this pattern of God partnering with humanity for the laboring and the birthing of his purposes on earth as it is in heaven. So for me, I feel the dignity of being invited into this partnership with the great abolitionist of all the ages, with the God who was anointed for the very purpose of opening prison doors, setting the captives free, and healing the brokenhearted. So as difficult and evil as this injustice is, and as dark as it is, I have taken courage and sustained myself in this fight through the knowledge of that compassionate God who ever lives to make intercession and is always fighting for justice in the earth and who never sleeps nor slumbers. That kind of spiritual insight has been the nourishment for my soul in this past 15 years of fighting against this issue of sex trafficking. No doubt. Grounding evidences is what you called it. I can sure see that. We so need that, don't we? in our calling. Absolutely. Well, there has been a major breakthrough not too long ago with regards to credit card companies cutting off the ability of MindGeek, 
who, as I understand, Benji, and obviously this is your space, they basically control 90% of the porn that's pushed out into the world. Is that accurate? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about how your organization, Exodus Cry, played a major role in allowing this to happen. Yeah. So for me, this started almost immediately when we set out to film our documentary on sex trafficking, again, called Nefarious Merchant of Souls. As we traveled the nations, observing, investigating, researching the subject of sex trafficking, we began to see these five ways that pornography was overlapping with sex trafficking. And so when we were done filming Nefarious and we released it, we came back to the drawing board. I assembled our team and we whiteboarded a plan to begin to address the subject of pornography from a public health and human rights standpoint. So looking at its impact on consumers and also looking at how pornography was being created and its impact on performers. And so that decision was ultimately an eight-year-long journey investigating this subject of pornography, reading everything that's ever been written on it, going into the porn industry and filming a documentary, and really just trying to learn and understand everything that we could. At the end of 2019, my colleague, who was our point person at Exodus Cry to research pornography, discovered that the largest porn site in the world, Pornhub, had created a model in which they enabled and profited from videos of real abuse, sex trafficking, videos of non-consensual interactions of all kinds, and also a lot of videos of underage individuals and sexual scenarios. And so the largest porn site in the world had that had really endeared themselves to the culture with the whole PR campaign and partnering with New York Fashion Week and doing advertisements in Times Square and so on and so forth. Their website was essentially a crime scene. It was infested with these videos of revenge porn, sex trafficking, rape, abuse of minors, all of these things. And so my colleague wrote an op-ed for the Washington Examiner called It's Time to Shut Down Pornhub and essentially building and citing the case against them. And this all had to do with a user-based upload model of pornography that was virtually completely unmoderated. So their site was just proliferated with these videos. And so that article went viral. And we had a lot of people say, hey, you guys should start a petition to have them taken down Mm -hmm. and shut down. And so we started a petition to shut down Pornhub and hold their executives accountable. And that petition quickly soared to 2 million signatures. 2 million? Wow. Yeah, really unprecedented stuff. And then we decided we really wanted to tell this story in sort of a bite-sized way. So we made this short animated video that we released, which ended up getting 33 million views across our social platforms. And eventually that connected us with Nick Kristoff from the New York Times, who ended up writing an article called The Children of Pornhub, laying out the entire case of what had transpired on their website and the people who were victimized by it. And that connected us with the CEOs of the major credit card companies 
at the end of 2019, who then decided to sever ties with Pornhub from the standpoint of people being able to use their credit card to access the content on their site. So it was this sequence of events that started to really bring accountability to Pornhub. So we laid out our demands for them, one of which being to remove the download feature on their website and to remove the ability for people just to randomly upload images and to get rid of all the non-verified content. So they began to do those things. They deleted 80% of their website, removed the download feature. They began to, to take some measures. But for us, at that point, it wasn't enough because it would be the equivalent of Harvey Weinstein saying, you know, oh, sorry, I'll do better next time. It's mm-hmm. like, well, yeah, maybe you will, maybe you won't, but you still need to be held accountable for the injustice that you've invoked on all of these people's lives that you victimized. And so that is the way our justice system operates. That is what you know helps stem and curb the tide of criminality and evil from from advancing and progressing in our culture, the deterrent of the rule of law. And so we escalated our effort to hold them accountable by addressing their parent company, MindGeek, who owns 90% of all online pornography. We began to connect with a number of survivors, and there are now dozens of lawsuits that are being brought against Pornhub and their parent company, MindGeek. The effort to hold them accountable has continued and resulted just over the course of this summer in their CEO and COO stepping down. We have heard rumors that 70% of their staff has been laid off. And most recently, all the major credit card companies severed ties with them on the other half of their revenue stream, which is the advertising side. So advertisers can no longer use major credit cards to advertise on their site. And so MindGeek is a sinking ship. And, you know, I just think back at that time in 2012 when we devised a plan to go after and address the issue of pornography and just seeing where that has brought us today is pretty incredible. But at the same time, it's so needed. The internet is still relatively new and we're just now starting to take an inventory for what it means for a generation to have grown up on the internet. Well, the internet is a city without walls and it has become the wild, wild west of sexuality where pornographers are distributing and promoting every deviant fantasy under the sun with no protections for children or anyone else online as well. So inadvertent exposure to these graphic, hardcore, violent, often criminal images are now commonplace. And so for us, we felt like it was time to take a stand against pornography, who has refused accountability on every level, and to demand that they be held accountable and also to ensure protections online for future generations of children. So we started another campaign called Protect Children Not Porn. We released a documentary called Raised on Porn about pornography's impact on childhood consumers. And that documentary has also gone viral and garnered nearly 4 million views on YouTube, on our Magic Lantern Pictures YouTube channel. And we are demanding that the hosting and distributing of all online pornography require 
be hosted behind age verification walls that require a government-issued ID to access. So we are undertaking the work that should have been done at the inception of the internet and trying to do damage control now. And we're trying to bring about embedded, concrete changes in the way that pornography is even able to be in our world in order to protect children, to bring justice to victims, and to hold the perpetrators accountable. In Isaiah chapter 1, God rebukes Israel in the state of their hyper-religious activity. They were doing all the religious stuff. They were having worship services, prayer services, doing all these things. And God says, it's an abhorrence to me because your heart is disconnected from the plight of the vulnerable. He says, therefore, repent. But in repenting, it's not just saying, oh, holy God, oh, sinful me. He says, in repenting, seek justice. And here's how. Number one, rebuke the oppressor. So that is a ministry, I think, that our generation has been completely paralyzed from engaging in because of the the moral compromise of a generation around the issue of sexuality, largely due to the widespread proliferation of pornography. So it has crippled a generation morally from taking a righteous stand against oppressors to rebuke them and to hold them accountable. And so I view our organization, Exodus Cry, as a rebuke the oppressor ministry as much as I do an advocate for victims organization. We are an organization that intends to hold perpetrators accountable, to rebuke them, and to stop them from continuing to perpetrate acts of exploitation and sexual violence against marginalized, vulnerable women and children in our world. And these campaigns that we've launched against the porn industry are an expression of that. I was going to ask you a question about the loss of moral authority. I put that in air quotes because virtually everybody's been exposed to porn and at some point perhaps had a season of addiction in their growing up, particularly boys and men. And so when this issue comes up, what do you say to individuals who are like, oh man, I'd love to get involved in helping stop this, but I've been a user and I feel too much shame, etc." What's your response to that? I'm just curious. My worldview starts with a paradigm of humanity as utterly lost, utterly hopeless, utterly broken. And Jesus being airdropped, if you will, into the middle of this war zone called a violent, morally bankrupt, and sexually perverse humanity. And as he's airdropped, Isaiah 61 and the correlating verse Luke 8, 418, he states his mission statement, which is essentially this, you're broken, but there's good news. That's not the end of the story. I've come to heal you. It's so easy for us to disqualify ourselves from the plans and purposes of God, but he came to qualify us in him. And so I cling to that passage in John where John the Baptist is depicted as saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of us can be reconciled to God through the death, the sacrifice, and resurrection of Jesus. And so I think that 
his sacrifice is greater than our failure. And where sin has abounded, grace has abounded that much more. In other words, if our sin was this huge sand castle that we had erected on the beach and looked so impressive to us, my God, what have I done? I failed in all of these areas. God's grace is like a tidal wave that completely overwhelms that sandcastle and takes up 10 miles of seashore. So while I'm very sober about the implications of our sin, and we certainly don't want to create a situation that tolerates or perpetuates, especially the sexual exploitation of anyone, I'm also cognizant that we all have gone astray. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. And it is nothing but his grace and his mercy that has reconciled us to him and qualified us to partner with him in the work of justice. So I think for those out there who have become trapped in a cycle of pornography consumption, you can start your story afresh today. God's mercies are new every morning. His compassion fails not. And I would just say that it's time to stop making an idol out of your sin. And it's time to stop believing that your sin is more powerful than God's grace and to surrender. Because the truth is, is that God is searching the earth to and fro, looking for one whose heart is loyal to him, to show himself strong on their behalf. When I look back on my own personal journey, I just think that it is nothing more than a testimony of God's grace, his goodness, and his mercy, and what he will do on behalf of those who partner with him through a simple, weak yes. And so there's a passage of scripture in Zechariah chapter 3, where Zechariah is standing before the Lord and Satan is there to accuse him. And, you know, maybe rightly so, because his turban had to be replaced. The garments of his iniquity had to be replaced. But the Lord is there as his advocate. And he says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And then he commands the servants to remove the iniquity from Joshua and place on him a clean turban. And then at the end of this passage, it says, and the Lord stood with him. That's the heart of God towards us in our failure. That is the heart. He's not there to accuse and to blame. That is the job of Satan. God is there to advocate, to vindicate, to set us free, to liberate us, to heal us, to take us from the dunghill and place our feet upon the rock so that we can stand with him in pursuing the work of justice to save real lives in real time and space. It's like the apostle James said, pure and undefiled religion is ministry to orphans and widows in their trouble. So it's this idea that there is this demographic of people out there whose protective covering has been removed, who are vulnerable to the predators on this planet that are under the influence of Satan, who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. There are people whose lives are being preyed upon with deception, with violence and exploitation. And James is saying, beloved, what this whole thing is about is about partnering with God in his work to bring about freedom, deliverance, and healing to those who are in these situations. That's the dignity that we bear on this side of eternity, that we will carry with us forever in the age to come. The testimony of partnering with God in a 
dark, perverse hour of history to bring about freedom, deliverance, and healing to his beloved. Wow. Thank you so much for what you just stated. So powerful. How can people find out more about your ministry and get involved in helping? Yeah, we are very active on social media. People can follow us at Exodus Cry, and we are always issuing calls to action correlated with various campaigns that we're undertaking. So we make films to help raise awareness and educate people and shift mindsets. And then we advocate for the changing of laws. We pattern our work after the work of William Wilberforce, who fought to end slavery in the 1800s. And I would just encourage people to check out our Exodus Cry website or to follow us on social media to partner with the work that we're doing to help bring justice into this area. We're currently releasing a new docu-series on the porn industry, which is a very hard-hitting documentary series. It's an expose of the porn industry called Beyond Fantasy. And along with that, we've started a new campaign called End Teen Porn. And this campaign is focused on ending and eradicating and abolishing the entire genre of teen pornography. So it would raise the age of consent from 18 years old to 21 years old to even enter into pornography. So we just think this is a really critical step in this fight. And we invite people to partner with us to get online and sign our petition and to help share the content that we're putting out to be a part of this growing abolitionist tribe that is focused on abolishing commercial sexual exploitation. As we finish here, we'd love to have you pray for our listeners, please, Benji. Absolutely. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the Father of lights, that though you see what is in darkness, light dwells with you, that you are full of virtue, that there is no variation nor shadow of turning in you. We thank you, God, that you are looking, that you are searching for a people who in their weakness will say yes to partnering with you to intervene on behalf of those that are being perpetrated against and exploited, who will partner with you in rebuking the oppressors of our day. And so even now, as we end our call together, we ask you that this call would go forth by your Spirit that you would invite us into that place of partnership with you to bear that dignity of fighting with you for the freedom, deliverance, and salvation of those who are suffering. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Benji, thank you for answering the call to partner with God in this incredible effort. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the show and share this with someone you believe would be encouraged and motivated by these stories. Until next time, I'm Brian Robinson reminding you that the greatest decision you could ever make is to ask Jesus Christ to become the Lord of your life. If you haven't done that, read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Thanks again for listening.